What is a um, what is a word you hate to hear? I wanted to read a list of society's most hated words to you all, but my wife advised me not to, and she was probably right. But it would have been weird. It would have been gross. So I abstained. But as humanity, as man and woman, there are a few things I believe we absolutely hate to hear. Certain phrases or words that give us cringe or make our skin crawl. Uh, Think about it. Uh, Simply the phrase, we need to talk. Means the relationship's over. No guy in here wants to hear their girlfriend like, we need to talk. Nobody wants to hear it. You know what really, uh, you know what really upsets me is hearing the phrase or hearing the words, and you guys, I hope you guys can bear witness to this, is when somebody's like, calm down. Or when somebody says something like, you seem grouchy. What, every time it's like, well, now I am. When somebody's like, you're, you're tired, go rest. We hate to hear things like, Hey, I got a great Nickelback playlist for our road trip. Or we, <laughs> we, we hate to hear things like, as we're sitting down in the movie theater, M. Night Shyamalan directed it. Those are things we do not want to hear. But one of the most intrusive, disruptive words in the Christian faith has to be repent. Repent. I just read a recent post on a well-known Christian blogging site titled, Why Do I Find Repent Such a Repulsive Word? Now, maybe this isn't shocking to some. Maybe some of you can relate to the repulsiveness. And maybe some of you who don't confess to know Jesus or follow Jesus, you, are, you too are thinking, yeah, that, that word's gross. You have a disdain for that word. That the word repentance is for those who hold signs On Hollywood Boulevard, it's a word for the self-righteous, religious, judgmental type. And sadly, it's a word with a meaning that has been greatly lost in our society and culture. Because what if this word, what if this idea, repentance, like an oyster, where it's hard-shelled on the outside, but is actually housing something quite beautiful? What if repentance was more like a pearl... To the Christian faith. It's a jewel in the hand of those who want to be near and personal with God. For so many, the reputation of repentance has been marred. So I would say today, a goal for us would be to reclaim it. To reclaim it. Because, friends, we must know the truth. You must know the truth about repentance. So our job today is to break the delusion. To break the delusion of repentance. And to discover, what does it really mean? To discover, are we still to repent today? To discover, how much are we supposed to repent? Uh, How do we repent? And an extremely important point is, how does repentance affect us as a community? How does our individual repentance affect us as a church? Which really should be the topic of any Sermon. That should always be a topic of a sermon. A sermon. An angle of a sermon is how is this going to affect us as a church? How does this fuel the fire of God's mission and our commission? Now, I know we haven't been in the book of Acts for quite some time due to the holidays, and then we had New Sunday and Sanctity of Life, but we're here now. And if you're new here, I want you to know, and if you've been around for a while, I want you to remember, we chose the book of Acts very, very, very purposely. 
Not because we thought it'd be cool to talk about Paul's shipwreck, although that will be a lot of fun. The fact we're going through this one book out of the 66 books in the Bible is because hopefully this inspires you as individual and it rallies us as a small new church. Hopefully it inspires and rallies us because as a newly formed church, we need to see in the 28 chapters of Acts that by the power of the Holy Spirit, and get this, a dozen men and a handful of women turned the world upside down. That and the apostles and the disciples, short amount of time with their deliberate missional mindset, Christianity started its spread to every corner of the globe. It's a story how these men and how these women impacted civilization and culture and education and medicine and freedom and countless of people's lives. Now, because it's a story, because Acts is this historical narrative, we have chose to call their series or journey or pilgrimage through this book archetypes. Meaning some things we'll see are more descriptions within this book of what took place for those men and women of the early church. Pentecost and of the Holy Spirit or the ascension of Jesus, those are one-time descriptions of one-time events. But then sometimes we're going to find in the book of Acts prescriptions, meaning we as followers of Jesus and members of a local church should seek to do in word and deed what the book of Acts tells us to evangelize or to love one another or to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Sunday after Sunday, we hunt down the archetype in our verses We look for the symbol, the idea, the truth that transcends race and culture and gender and speaks to us all. So each and every week, we use it for our Bible reading plan. I hope to God you're using it for your discipleship groups because we want us to collectively be rocked, to be informed church-wide by the amazing truth. And get this, by the amazing truth of what a handful of people, a handful of people with barely no resources could do. And how that was only the start of what the Spirit of God wants to do in us today. To read it and ask ourselves, what could 200 of us do in the strength of the Holy Spirit? What could the West Side look like if we had enough faith to believe that God's plan to turn the West Side upside down involves you? And it involves you. And it involves me. So read and hear the book of Acts as your invitation to participate in the greatest story and the greatest movement ever. And a pinnacle component that is a part of all of this is our topic for today, that being repentance. Repentance being an irreplaceable turnkey in the life of a Christian. And it's one of the most crucial actions for those who do not know Jesus yet. The famous Scottish minister Oswald Chambers He says it very, very clearly. He says the foundation of Christianity is repentance. So let's see how the book of Acts sets up this archetype of repentance for us. We read our verses. The ones we just read today is part two. I hope you guys remember. It was a sequel to what we talked about last year, last December. If you remember, and I'll go over, I'll set up the scene. Peter and John are on their way to the temple for some prayer. They see a disabled man over there outside asking for money. They go, yo, bro, we have no cash on us, but we got something better. And they tell him this, like, we got something that's going to rock you. And basically what happens at that moment, this disabled man who has never in his entire life stood on his own two feet. 
He's never stood, and now he is standing on his two, own two feet. And by the power of God, he not only stands, but he walks, and he leaps, and he begins to worship. And everyone seeing this is enraptured with, with wonder, and they're freaking out, as all of us would be. And we joined them in that moment. And we see Peter, the evangelist that he is, sees an opportunity. An opportunity to explain, to preach, to teach. Look at verse 11 again. While he clung, this disabled man, to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. People are running. They are booking it over there. So what's the best way to draw a crowd? A crowd. So people are starting to see what's going on. Look at verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people of men of Israel. Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power of piety we have made him walk? Piety being this religious devotion or this sort of religious reverence. Essentially, he's saying, are you kidding me? People are running and freaking out. And Peter goes, what what, what, what are you talking about? This wasn't us. Peter's reminding them, I didn't do this. We didn't do this. Peter and John know that they are vessels of God's power, not the source. They know it's Christ in them. But look at this, the beast that he is, Peter makes sure to squeeze every moment out of this. And I want us to pick up on this. Verse 13. God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. So Peter's going off. The God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. I want us to soak this up. Peter's intro to his sermon, it's very formal. He doesn't start with some silly joke or tell some story about his kids. He takes his growing audience to common ground and speaks words that operate like a steamroller to everybody who was there. Those being, these words, those being the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers. Now, why does he use those words? Because he first must explain who Jesus is before he can unveil what the power of Jesus has done. Do you guys remember in Back to the Future, we're at the end. Every illustration of mine will be on Back to the Future. But you guys remember Back to the Future at the end where Dr. Emmett Brown makes that final connection between the cable on the clock tower and the cable that will send Marty McFly into 1985? Do you guys remember that? That one scene where everybody's like, he's not going to make it. So that wacky doctor, he makes the connection right in time for the lightning to strike. He makes the connection right in time for the lightning to strike. Peter is doing what Dr. Emmett Brown did in Back to the Future. See, Peter's connecting two ends of a single electrical explanation of who Jesus is. Of who Jesus is. He's basically saying, how are you still in the dark? The patriarchs, the fathers, the ones you respect and know, all look towards the days of Jesus. Peter connected the cables of the past, of the Old Testament promises, with the fulfillment of the New Testament. And this is beautiful. Follow along with me. And then Peter, like a 
pastry chef whips up some sweet Christology cupcakes. Look at this. He rants all these paradoxes all pertaining to the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Look how smooth this is. Peter is, he's, he's, he's pretty dope right here. Look at verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one, that being Jesus, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Then jump to verse 17. And now, therefore, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So just in a few teeny, short, small verses, striking words, Peter gives the gospel. Excuse me. And then he puts the listeners on the line. He puts the listeners on the line. Basically saying, now what? Peter gets done through this whole thing and he goes, now what? What happens now that you have been told the truth of Jesus? What happens now when ignorance, as Peter called it, is at its end? What I love about Peter's paradoxical sermon is that there's no trace or whiff of Jesus is going to solve all of your problems. There's nothing in Peter's sermon that Jesus is going to make all of your loneliness go away. There's nothing in Peter's sermon that the belief on Jesus will give you a much smoother life. There's nothing in Peter's sermon about health or wealth. The most attractive thing about Peter's sermon is the confrontational identity and mission of who Jesus is on heaven and on earth. So for us today, breaking the delusion of repentance only begins to make sense when we're confronted with Christ's identity and mission. Because it doesn't, hear me, this, because doesn't it make sense that when society has lost sight of God or of his word or the gospel of Jesus, that it's no wonder that repentance tastes more bitter than sweet. Peter in this short sermon is trying to put back together in their minds Christ's identity and mission. And get this, this is so beautiful. I hope we can pick up on this. Peter explains boldly, which rings true now and in the days of Jesus, that they would call Jesus a false prophet. But in verse 22, we see that he is the prophet. Well, the culture speaks against Jesus. But we see in verse 24 that Samuel in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament, excuse me, spoke of him. Religious leaders thought that Jesus' dad, his father, was the devil. But these verses show us that he's the son of Abraham. Well, people speak wickedly of Jesus. Well, God treated him righteously. He was tortured and beaten and purged and whipped for being a blasphemer. The Bible says that he is the son of the most high God. And Peter goes on to say that those who denied him before Pilate, God glorified him in heaven. That you gave life to a murderer and you murdered the author of life. And the one that you would not save, God sent to be our savior. Excuse me. Hopefully we're starting to see that there is a galactic difference between the world's perception of Jesus and who the person of Jesus is. Between what Los Angeles claims that he is and who the West Side thinks he actually is. Peter the preacher makes sure that these at Solomon's portico will never forget. Verse 13, Jesus' is servant. Verse 14, Jesus is the holy and righteous one. 
Verse 15, Jesus is the author of life. Verse 22, that Jesus is the prophet and the fulfillment. It's gnarly. To everyone who hears these words, Peter says now, as he did then, in verse 17, this is the end of ignorance. This is the end of ignorance. See, the point for them, and again, it's resounding for us, that if we have been told the truth about who Jesus is, very simply, now what? Now what? If you're here today and you don't believe in Jesus, first, we're pumped that you're here. I hope you know that we care about you. I hope you feel welcome. But I also want to talk directly to your situation in life. See, when this church gathering ends, what are you to make of this? A room full of the most random people on the west side coming together and singing, praying together, caring for one another. Are you going to go home and go, crazy? Are we typical? Are we boring? Are we odd? Or do we have a message that needs considering? And on the other end, for some of you, you actually get it. You totally get it. You believe it's truth. Yeah, I know it's true. I know it. I grew up with it. I believe it. I had this thing in high school and thing in call. Yeah, I believe it. But it's not yet seeped in to become real. So you're waiting to get serious until you're out of school, or you're waiting to follow Jesus until you know until you you know you land on your feet, or you're willing to follow Jesus to become Lord after this or after that, or you're waiting or you're willing for for, for to follow Jesus if there's an emotional experience to hear tonight now. Peter would say the same thing to us as he did to those then. This is the end of ignorance. Today is the day to believe on Jesus. You've been told that is poison. Stop drinking it. We are to stop drinking. You've been told the bridge is out. Do not drive that way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so for both parties, the people in this room who for the first time have heard about Jesus and his great love for us, to the other end of the spectrum of people who have known forever but have not yet really made that a reality within their life, Peter's call to action is the same. Verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that your times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So what we have here, what Peter's doing is he's, he's using the no-no word. Peter said, repent. Peter says, that which cannot be named. Peter has the guts to tell a bunch of people who just walked out of the temple for prayer to repent. What a jerk. Right? What a self-righteous, judgmental, hypocritical jerk Peter is using the word repent. Let's think about it. This is not Peter. Foot in mouth, Peter? Get behind me, Satan, Peter? Is this not denier of Christ and Jesus' hour of need, Peter? Is this not ear cutter offer man, Peter? Is this not Peter who ran from a little girl? 
Is this not he? And yet he stands here and he tells me to change my ways? Mm -mm. Who in the world does Peter think he is? Simply, he is a man. Simply, he is a man who has been there before. Peter is beseeching, not as an oppressor or lording it over them, but as a man who was formerly blind, but now he sees. He's saying, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Peter knows the unimaginable joy of repentance firsthand. Friends, do you? Do you know the unimaginable joy of repentance? See, part of the stigma chained to this word comes not from... It comes from a lack of understanding its purpose. See, people then and people now struggle to understand it. Just as they did with Peter, just as they did with John the Baptist, and just as they did with Jesus, as these were his first words in his adult ministry. So I believe a helpful way to understand it is to understand what it isn't. What repentance is not. So let's take some time to collectively smash the delusions. To smash the delusions of repentance. See, for so many, we believe it's simply just a halt. Repentance is a halt. That is a delusion. That somehow repentance is a stopping of sin or a stopping of wicked ways. But we must not see it merely that way. That's a half-truth which only ends in frustration. See, when we repent, we can't forget that it's all about movement. Not the stopping. Repentance is about movement and action. You see, if to sin, if to sin is the desire, then, see, if to sin is to desire something more than God, then repentance is the course correction of desiring God more than sin. So it's an intentional choosing of the correct course. It's a choosing of what is more convenient for the now versus what is needed for eternity. See, Peter reminded those at Solomon's portico of that same reality. He gets up in their face about it. He goes, you chose a murderer. He shouted over the author of life. Why? Because a murderer is far more convenient than a someone bringing me to the end of my ignorance. So Christian or not here tonight, repentance is about choosing which road to be on. Because the road to self The road to self is a road that is going the opposite way of God. It's a road that is destined for collision and death. So it's much more than just stopping. It's a radical, radical reversal. My wife and I just rewatched Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, gosh. And we're... The climax of that film is when they stop heading for the nothingness and the salty wasteland. The climax of the film, when they stop heading that way and they do a complete opposite. They make a radical reversal and they go back to their answer. They go back to the citadel. They go back to the source of life, the rivers of living water. So what's my point? Repentance is the fury road. It's back. It's the fury road back to abundant life. See, it's an arduous turning. 
It's what Eugene Peterson would say, the first word into Christian immigration is repentance. It's the action of coming to live elsewhere. Now, the New Testament and its use of this word is change of mind. Change of mind, excuse me. So many of you have probably, so many of you have probably heard and know that. The change of mind, you've heard, you know that. That sounds easy, right? That sounds easy and simple enough like building Ikea furniture. But if we don't actually grasp it, there will be problems and things will fall apart like Ikea furniture. You see, I for years had the delusion in assuming that change of mind just meant "Mm, change of mind. Sin is dumb. Okay, sin is dumb, dumb. I got it. That's my mind has changed. But it's far, far, far greater than just that. See, first, it's a change of thoughts regarding self. It's a change of mind regarding self. That I actually can't change myself. That repentance isn't some self-improvement workout video. See, to change my thoughts about myself and to acknowledge that I know in my belly, in the core of Casey, I am not fundamentally a good guy. But I am desperate for a savior. As one author said, repentance is contrition for what we, for, excuse me, for what we are in the fundamental beings, that we are wrong in our deepest roots because our interior government is by self and not by God. Secondly, we get to that awareness by a change of mind regarding our sin. My sin, your sin. That ultimately, I am responsible. We are responsible. Not him, not her, not our parents, not the situation, not alcohol, not that substance. I am responsible. So many hate repentance because it puts us at the crime scene. I mean, there's no Stephen Avery trial here or guessing game about who did what. To repent means we turn ourselves in. Repentance is turning ourselves in. We own it. We own it. Every fiber of it. To say we're responsible, just see who church, just we know as a church, I mean, that, that is a true sign of, of maturity in Jesus. To know and own how we've hurt ourselves and how we've hurt others and ultimately God. Which brings us to our third point in changing of mind. That repentance is a change of mind towards God. This being the most important understanding in the biblical practice of repentance. And get this, that despite the wreckage of our sin, from lust to embezzlement, God is mightier. And he is willing to forgive and he is madly in love with you and with me. See, Peter in his sermon is saying to all who hear, you denied, you delivered, and you destroyed the body of Jesus, God's only son. It's intense. And what he's saying afterwards is change direction. Because the God you are running from wants to forgive. Peter's saying, turn your direction towards God. The God of the Christian faith is one of kindness. If you're new to the Christian faith or curious about it, the God of the Christian faith is one of kindness and goodness and second chances and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and so on and so on and so on. 
Now, this is important. A massive delusion in repentance is to think that repentance is a one-time act. That we partake of it when we start, decide to follow Jesus. One time, God, it. I repented. Now, hear me. Yes, repentance is a necessity for the first act of receiving his salvation. But salvation by its very nature and name means we are saved from sin to be set apart, to be sanctified. A daily transformed life comes from a daily repentant life. Martin Luther, the catapult for the Protestant church, has very famously said, you've probably heard it, He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant that the entire life of a believer should be one of repentance. See, if we sin daily, we are to repent daily. If we choose our directions over his from circumstance to circumstance, then we are to repent with each passing circumstance. I, I was thinking about this this morning. I was a horrific, terrible father and husband yesterday. Terrible. Um, I, I was sitting on the couch and I had to grab my wife's hand and I just said, I am so sorry that I missed the opportunity today. And she's like, mm. I missed the opportunity to be a better husband. And uh, I was broken by it. And I'm, I'm in this time of trying to tell all of you, I got to preach at the church to repent. And here I am just being a... Bleh. I had to do some serious repenting. I was rude. I was mean. I was short-tempered. And I missed a good day off with my family because I was a jerk. Repentance should be daily. Daily, 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 daily. Anything that may hinder our wholehearted devotion to God should be turned away from. This is the daily taking up of the cross that Jesus spoke about in the Gospels within the Bible. Now, if it sounds hard, guess what? It's because it is. Repentance is not very much fun. It's hard, hard work. Out of the 70 times the Bible speaks of repentance, more often than not, it's connected with rigor and thoroughness and even pain. C.S. Lewis always, always says it best. When he says, now repentance is no fun at all. It is something much harder than merely eating humble pie. It means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will that we have been training ourselves into for thousands of years. Friends, it's no fun and it's hard work. But hear me, it's worth it. Because God and his kindness is worth it. Is God worth it to you? Is God worth it to you? When you repent, know this. It's God's kindness that led you there. Another book in the New Testament called Romans informs us of this where it says this. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Excuse me. Repentance is far more about blessedness in God than our wickedness in sin. Meaning that to change our mind and saying no to our sin and saying yes to God. As we reject our sin because we know we are accepted by God. It's to turn from traveling towards self and start traveling towards our Savior. This is the only change of mind which leads to a change of life. 
It's God's loving kindness that leads us back. Not our emotions. Please hear me. Another massive delusion. Not our emotions. Mind, be mindful of that. That it's not just remorse or sorrow. Too many of us have delusions that, that regret is repentance. That regret is repentance. I totally regretted it. Those are emotions that I would say are important and can be useful in the repentant process. But that is not repentance. Just feeling sorry about it is not repentance. There's an old school Puritan, super poetic quote by Thomas Watson. He paints it very poetically. He says, sorrow is good for nothing but sin. If you shed tears for outward losses, it will not advantage advantage you. Water for the garden, if poured in the sink, does no good. Powder for the eye, if applied to the arm, is of no benefit. Sorrow is medicine for the soul. But if you apply it to worldly things, it does no good. Oh, that our tears may run in the channel and our hearts burst with sorrow for sin. Sorrow for sin. See, godly sorrow brings repentance, 2 Corinthians tells us. Sorrow, mourning, and regret are never the end game, though. Sorrow, mourning, and regret are never the destination of repentance. We have never fully repented if all we've got is a bag full of sorrow. That's not repentance. That's a self-based repentance, which in the end, we will only end up hating ourselves. Gospel-based repentance, within the end, will hate our sin. The practice of gospel-based repentance looks like this. I want to get practical for a second. It looks like this, of gospel-based repentance. It's seeing our specific sin. Specific sin. Get specific with our sins with the Lord. Not just, oh God, this or that. No, God, I was a jerk towards my wife when I did this, this, and this. I need to be then sorrowful over that. So it's to see the sin and to be sorrowful over that sin. And then it's speaking the sin. I needed to confess to my wife. I need to confess to the Lord. And then it's surrendering as a sinner to the one who has come to save us as sinners. These actions help bring the person love what they once hated and hate what he or she once loved. Peter wants his audience to hate their sin and love Jesus more. We as collective church, we want us to hate our sin and love Jesus more. Not judge the sins of others, but to be a church of humility and unified and repentance does that. If we want to be a church of humility and unified, repentance is what does this. Repentance is both this inward act as Christians, but this outward act as a community. A collective church that confesses sin. A collective church where no one here thinks that they were more spiritual or greater than the other. Gross. That would be terrible. A collective church that worships because we've been rescued out of our wickedness. But we worship in such a way, we serve in such a way, we love in such a way that anybody visiting, Christian or not, they come in and they can't help but say, God is among these people. Friends, if you've never repented of your sins or if it's been years or months since the last time you turned from your sin towards God, why not today? 
It's the gospel of Jesus, which proves God's loving kindness and how serious he takes your sin. Simultaneously, God's loving kindness in the cross and how serious he takes our sin. We should be sorrowful over our sin and then surrender in repentance. And no matter the sin, no matter the sin, the sin of lust, I can't stop looking at pornography. The sin of gossip, I cannot stop slandering her. I can't stand her or him. The sin of hatred or judgment of others, the sin of anger, hot-temperedness, the sin of religiosity, thinking, i got to be really good. If that is you, and if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please heed the instructions of Peter. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Friends, forgiveness and substantial refreshing comes only by way of Jesus. Repent and turn towards Jesus. I can only imagine, is there anybody here today who needs to be refreshed? Is there anyone here today who feels the weight of their sin or their past actions? Through the cross of Jesus, they can be blotted out, erased, deleted. Like serious deleting, like deleting the trash can on your computer, kind of deleting, like gone. Serious. We got to see that the only way we can turn towards God is the blessing of repentance. The only way we can turn towards God is in the blessing of repentance is then to realize that Jesus first turns towards us in our wickedness. Verse 26 God, having raised up a servant, sent him first to you to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And I end with this. One of the greatest delusions that Satan or the world or our flesh has ever done with repentance was to hide its purpose of blessings. Was to hide its purpose of blessings. Do not deny the unimaginable joy, the assurance, the life, and the blessings any longer. Receive it. Pray with me.